Would you please turn with me to your study outlines as we finish up our series, Being a Person of Purpose, as you're turning. Let me welcome those of you that are watching online. We are so glad that you are with us as well. Uh, We've been doing this series mainly from characters within the Bible, primarily Elisha, uh, the pastor Jay just mentioned with regard to that song, we, we studied that story uh, where the servant looks up and he can't see God's presence and then his eyes are open and he sees that greater are those that are with us than those that are against us. Well, mainly we looked at Elisha and others, but now we're going to finish up with a person of purpose from history. I often like to do this on Memorial Day weekend in the same way that we're remembering those that sacrificed so that we can have political freedom. I like to spend some time looking at those that we wanna thank and be grateful for that sacrificed for our spiritual freedom. And such is the case with Jonathan Edwards, probably the most influential American in all of American history, as I'm gonna share with you why I think that in just a couple of minutes, just to give you a, a sense of when he lived, 1703 to 1758. Uh, this past uh, Wednesday, it was funny, uh, Pastor Brian and Pastor Peter and I were meeting with two deans uh, from Cal Baptist University in Riverside. And we were sitting down and visiting with them over lunch uh, there in the school cafeteria. And I was talking to the dean of the school of theology. And I was telling him how excited I was about the message this morning and all these interesting little tidbits that I was learning, mainly through the research of my friend, Dane Acker, and uh, was sharing this with him. And he seemed to know a little bit about what I was talking about. So finally, I asked him, I said, by the way, what was your PhD dissertation on anyway? And he said, Jonathan Edwards. And I, you know, I, I felt about that uh, tall. But he gave me some additional stuff that I want to share with you in the next few minutes. I also put there in your uh, program, I put the statement of faith. Because I thought, you know, with kind of the emphasis on our church history and our values and how those things carry on uh, generation to generation. And you can always go to our website and share our statement of faith with somebody or look at it yourself. But I just thought I'd put a copy of that uh, there in your bulletin, in your program that just kind of remind us of how generation to generation we may apply the gospel in different ways. I always say we want to be liberal in orthopraxy, but conservative in orthodoxy. Orthodoxy means the right doctrine of the faith. We will stand on God's word until Jesus returns, every last little part of it. Uh, And yet we always want to be progressive in moving ahead in orthopraxy and how we apply the gospel uh, generation to generation. Now let's look at um, Jonathan Edwards, as I mentioned, 1703 to 1758. He was born in Connecticut uh, in 1703. He was the son, grandson, and great-grandson of pastors. Uh, That means he was a fourth-generation pastor. And in the world in which he lived, that would make him an aristocrat. This is what we pastors refer to as the good old days, is what we call them. He was one of 11 children. Uh, he was the only boy, and they had uh, ten. He had ten sisters, and all of them were tall. All of them were about six feet tall, and so his father used to say that he had sixty feet of girls, is what he had, because he had ten girls, all six feet tall. At the age of thirteen, Jonathan Edwards studied at Yale in order to become a pastor. What I want us to look at this morning is seven things that made Jonathan Edwards a person of purpose. The first is, as a teenager, he fell in love with God. At the age of 17, he came across this verse that's there in your study outline. 1 Timothy 1, verse 17. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And as a teenager, this verse just got a hold of him and gripped him and it became a theme for his life. 
And at the age of 19, he writes out 70 uh, resolutions that were going to guide his entire life. And I want to share some of those with you as they guided certain chapters of his life. Resolution number one, resolve that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory and my own good profit and pleasure in the whole of my duration. He believed that whatever caused you to enjoy God, whatever caused you to glorify God, that ultimately was a selfish act in a good way. That was for our own good. That's what would lead to profit and pleasure within our lives. He writes there in your study outline, the enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. Second reason he was a person of purpose. As a young man, he picked a godly wife. Now, many are called to singleness, and, and we honor that at our church and because we believe it's the biblical ideal in some ways. In 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul talks about he was a single adult. Jesus was a single adult. And so he talked about the fact that the greatest way to serve God wholeheartedly is as a single adult. But if God calls you to be married, the most important decision you'll ever make is to follow Christ. The second most important is who you choose to go through life with. That'll go more than anything else uh, to determine whether you fulfill your purpose in Christ or not. So anyway, Jonathan Edwards meets this girl, Sarah, when he was 20 years old, and she was 13. Okay, now that sounds sketchy in our day and age, but it was perfectly normal back then. It was a story of opposites attract. Uh, They had this courtship. He meets this 13-year-old girl. She's the daughter of a pastor in New Haven, Connecticut. Now, they're just absolute opposites. She had this impeccable uh, social background. One of her great-grandfathers was the first mayor of New York City. Now, in contrast to that, Jonathan Edwards was gawky. He was tall in a day when it was considered attractive for men to be short. Uh, Sarah shined in social situations. But Jonathan Edwards was withdrawn. He was soft-spoken. He was given to depression. He was stiff. Uh, Edwards described Sarah like this. She will sometimes go about from place to place singing sweetly and seems always to be full of joy and pleasure and no one knows for what. You know, it's just like, she's always happy and you can't really figure it out. He was absolutely smitten. He thought about her all the time. His moods would wildly swing up and down. He'd even be distracted from his studies at Yale. He was studying at Yale to be a pastor and he would write poems about Sarah in the front of his textbooks when he should have been studying. Now, he had to wait four years for her to grow up and to be 17 until they could get married. Meanwhile, he becomes the assistant pastor in Northampton, Massachusetts, at the Congregational Church uh, there in, in Massachusetts. And there's a sketch of what they looked at. Now, this was considered a huge church at its time. It had 600 attenders. And, you know, it's a funny thing, but we kind of have a skewed view of history in being a church of our size. In the 21st century in Southern California, we think it's, it's, it's not that unusual. Do you know that there were only a handful of churches in all the world prior to 1970 that were the size of our church? Very few in all of history, all around the world. Prior to 1970, there were very few churches of our size. Now, we think it's more common being in Southern California and being, you know, in the year 2013, but it was very unusual. And this church of 600 attenders was considered a mega church of its time. It was considered humongous. And it was pastored by his grandfather, Solomon Stoddard, who was extremely popular. His grandfather pastored in Massachusetts for 55 years. He was called the Pope of New England. Now, one year after coming to Northampton, he finally gets to marry Sarah. She wore a bright green dress 
uh, to the wedding, a sign of the exuberance that the Puritans felt about love. You know, our image of, of the Puritans, as it's been revised in history, is so far off the mark. We tend to think they're this angry, bunch of cranky, uh, narrow people. Nothing could be further from the truth. They were fantastic people, and they were very romantic. And contrary to popular belief, they celebrated love. They, they thought that marriage was a high and holy honor, and they treated women fantastic. Do you know that in Puritan culture or in their society that a man could be punished by the government for simply using harsh words to his wife? If you spoke harshly to your wife, you would be maybe thrown into jail or punished in some way. How many of you women, not so bad to be a Puritan now, you know? They throw in jail. Uh, the word that Edwards loved to use of marriage was sweetness. That's what he termed with regard to marriage. He preached one of his most moving sermons from Genesis 2, verses 21 and 22. He said this, when Adam rose from his deep sleep, uh, God brought woman to him from near his heart. And theirs is one of the great love relationships of all time. They had 11 children, just like Jonathan Edwards came from a family of 11. They had 11 children of their own. And you know, I, I failed at 8.30 to bring up one of the best illustrations. And you know, I don't have the specifics of it. Rich Owen ran up to me after the service. He says, Glenn, you forgot like the best part. And, and then I remembered it. It's like, you know, all my best sermons are driving home after church is over. I'm telling you, it's just like, that's where all the good stuff comes from you guys or, or just, I think of it later on. But there is this study done of the children from Jonathan and Sarah Edwards. And it is just an astounding study of something like this huge percentage of the business leaders, of the university education leaders, of the political leaders that all came from this marriage. They literally, uh, I'm going to talk about the influences preaching had, but just as much within the home through their children, they literally built America from the godly ground up. It's just an, a, quite a study when you read about all the people that came uh, from them. Now, four of their children were born on Sunday. And the Puritans believed that you were the day of the week you were born on was the day of the week you were conceived on. That's what they believed. So they believed that these four children that were born on Sunday were conceived on Sunday. So these Puritans used to tease Jonathan Edwards relentlessly about, hey, what are you and Sarah planning this afternoon after church? You know, this is what passed for, um, you know, kind of dirty Puritan humor back then, I guess, you know, and off-color uh, jokes. But they tease him about it relentlessly, and that's the way the Puritans were. They were very much a, a full of life. In the evenings, uh, Jonathan and Sarah used to sit by the fireplace and smoke their pipes together. I've been trying to get Kimberly to do this, but she just, she just won't go for it. I said, look, Jonathan and Sarah, Edwards did it. Why can't we? Uh, they'd spend their days when they had a free day riding horseback together and sharing their days together. Every night before they went to bed, they would read the Bible and, uh, and pray together. And they literally changed the course of American history from their home, from his pulpit, but also from their home. 14 years after they were married, Sarah had this overwhelming experience and encounter with God where God came on her so powerfully that she fainted. She had visions of God. The neighbors had to come in because she was incapacitated and take care of the house uh, running for a short amount of time. Edwards said that she had an even better attitude than before after this. She made jams, she rocked babies to sleep, hemmed pillowcases with uninterrupted cheerfulness, peace, and joy. And so just uh, those of you that are called to, to being a single adults, rejoice in that. But those of you that are called to marriage, 
it's better to wait and wait until you find just that right person that can help you fulfill uh, God's purpose and plan for your life. Then number three, he cared deeply about people's souls. Here's another resolution, number 55. Resolve to endeavor to my utmost to act as I can think I should do if I had already seen the happiness of heaven and hell's torments. You imagine how different our lives would be, how different our priorities would be if God allowed us to just have five minutes in heaven and five minutes in hell and then sent us back to life once again. Everything would change. Our priorities would change. Our values would change. Everything would be focused not just on going to heaven, but on taking our oikos and as many people with us there as well. And he wanted to live his life that way. He was passionate about the souls of other people. He becomes the senior pastor, succeeds his grandfather as the senior pastor of his church at the age of 26. He preaches for five years with absolutely no visible results. Now, let me just, a word of encouragement. Maybe you're teaching children's Sunday school or Awana or you're working in some other ministry and you just, the years go by and you just don't see much fruit for it. Persevere. Many times God is working beneath the surface and you don't see the visible results until later on. And he preaches for five years and nothing happens. Now, this is important. George Washington was born when Jonathan Edwards was at the age of 29. And why that's important is I really believe that Jonathan Edwards was almost like a, a John the Baptist sent ahead for the ones that founded our country. Uh, the Great Awakening happens two years later uh, when George Washington was two years old at the Jonathan Edwards was age 31. We have the greatest revival in American history. Now, um, on, on Memorial Day weekend, we think about our country, we think about our heritage. And, and you think, you know, it was a wonderful thing that the first people that came to America to start America were on fire Christians. And that is absolutely true. And the people that founded our country with the Constitution, with the, um, you know, the, the Bill of Rights and, and the Declaration of Independence, that they were on fire Christians. And that is absolutely true. But it is not true that there was this uninterrupted commitment to the, things, to the things of Christ and the things of God from the time the first people came to America to when the country was founded. That is not true. It may surprise you to know that right before the American Revolution, there was this huge moral slump in America. Now, that's an encouragement to us today because how many of you are worried about the spiritual condition of America? Let me see your hands. Well, this is an encouragement to you. Right before the American Revolution, right in these years like 1720, 1730, there's this huge moral, moral slump. Alcohol abuse was rampant. Out of 5 million people that were in America at that time, 300,000 were alcoholics. 15,000 died of alcoholism every year. Crime was increasing. For the first time in American history, women were afraid to go out on the streets alone at night. Uh, Christianity was non-existent in the schools of higher education. At Harvard, there were zero Christians. At Princeton, there were only two Christians, and only five members of the student body were not members of what was called the filthy speech movement. At Williams College in Massachusetts, they would hold mock communions. At Dartmouth, they would hold anti-Christian plays. Uh, Christians on, uh, in, in higher universities, higher education, would meet in secret like you would in a Muslim or a communist country. The churches were in terrible shape. Uh, the Methodists were shrinking. The Baptists were having their worst time. 
the Congregationalists in New England were, were dying. There was this one uh, prominent church where it had been 16 years since a single young person had walked through the doors of the church. The Lutherans were shrinking so badly that they were considering merger with the Episcopalians. Um, the leader of the Episcopalians in the state of New York had gone so long without confirming anyone that he left the ministry and took another job. Uh, Chief Justice John Marshall wrote to the Bishop of Virginia and said that Christianity was so far gone that it could never come back in our country. The French atheist Voltaire predicted that in 30 years, Christianity would be non-existent in the world. Church historian Kenneth Scott Latterette says that the church's back was against the wall. And then people began to pray. And it all started with this little pamphlet by Jonathan Edwards. And you know how today you try to have a pithy, very brief um, title to your book, like preferably one word title to a book. That's what makes it a bestseller. You just got to have that pithy title. Here was the title of his book. A humble attempt to promote explicit agreement and visible union of all God's people in extraordinary prayer for the revival of religion and the extension of Christ's kingdom. And this book was reprinted all over the 13 colonies, and it led to the greatest revival in American history. Uh, It began in 1734. It reached its peak around 1740, about 36 years before the American Revolution and the Declaration of Independence. By 1800, historians said there was a complete turnaround in America. Thousands upon thousands of people came to Christ. 600 Christian universities popped up practically overnight and were founded during this time. There was this huge missionary movement that spread all around. America began to pump out missionaries all around the world. The Great Awakening changed the course of American history, changed the course of the world. Because prayer changes things. Does anybody want to say amen to that? And let me just give you a little pre-commercial. On June 23rd, Oh my goodness, the choir, I've listened to the music and, and, and seen that the choir's gonna do a prayer musical at 8.30, at 9.45, then I'll be preaching on prayer at the 11.11 service. We're gonna have a day of emphasis on prayer. It's gonna be not only for ourselves, but for our community and for our nation as well. It's gonna have the feel of kind of the national day of prayer. And it is gonna be a powerful, powerful day, June 23rd, mark it there in, in your calendar, because prayer changes things in our own lives and in the life of of, of our nation. Well, uh, going back to how it started, here's how the whole thing started. In 1734, remember Jonathan Edwards, he's been preaching for five years, nothing's happened. And all of a sudden, one day he's preaching and a prostitute came to Christ. Now that's an exciting thing when it happens in our day and age, but back then it was absolutely unheard of. Five people came to Christ in one day. 300 people came to Christ in one year. Now we think, okay, that's, that's exciting, but you know, oh no, percentage-wise, that's like 100,000 people in Pomona coming to Christ in one year. That's the equivalency uh, for that town. Uh, you'll see some quotes there that Edwards said about this town uh, there in your, um, in your study outline. The town was never so full of love nor of joy and yet so full of distress as it was then. He writes, every hearer was eager to drink in the words of the minister as they came from his mouth. Uh, Jonathan Edwards became the first superstar preacher in American history, kind of the Billy Graham of his time. It was during this time period that he preached that sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now, I might date myself a little bit here, but how many of you had that in your high school literature book, an English book? Anybody? Maybe it was just in Virginia, okay, that we had it. But we had it, and it was usually given 
in almost a mocking way to say, boy, these Puritans were crazy, angry kind of people. Nothing could be further from the truth. It was because Jonathan Edwards loved people. Remember his resolution? He wanted to live his life. He wanted to preach as if he had already seen for himself the eternal destiny of heaven or of hell. He thought of verses like you'll see there in your study outline. Revelation 19, verse 15. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. It's because he loved people so much. He cared so much about them that he would preach a sermon like sinners in the hands of an angry God, not out of vindictiveness because he loved people and he wanted them to go to heaven and to avoid God's uh, judgment. You'll see an excerpt there in your study outline uh, from that particular sermon. Historians tell us that people would come under such power and conviction of the Holy Spirit that during the sermon they would cry out and grab the back of the seat in front of them. At times, Jonathan Edwards had to pause in his sermon because the weeping, the crying in the congregation was so loud that you couldn't hear the sermon. He would preach for two hours and the Holy Spirit would come on the church and the people. They'd be convicted of sin. They'd repent of sins. Sometimes they'd fall down and remain for up to 24 hours completely motionless just out cold uh, for 24 hours. Eventually, this revival grew and became known as the Great Awakening. Edwards started to travel throughout New England, preaching and at the same time pastoring his church. You know, it reminds me so much of the day of Pentecost. You'll see there in your study outline, Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. And, and it reminds me of that first time in the early church. Really, the start of the church was on the, the day of Pentecost. Uh, number four, he studied the scriptures voraciously. Resolution number 28, resolved to study the scriptures so steadily, constantly, and frequently as that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of the same. Let's put a picture of him with his Bible up there. He took a Bible completely apart page by page, and he would sew in a blank page in between each of the pages of scripture, and then sew the whole thing back together again. Then in handwriting so tiny you could barely read it, he wrote notes on the scriptures. It was really the first study Bible. He called it the blank Bible because of the blank pages where he would write notes in between the pages of scripture. Now just a quick challenge uh, for the the summer. And and I know sometimes summer can be almost as busy as the regular year, but sometimes you get a little discretionary time. And if you don't already uh, have a daily time reading God's word, You just need to make it a habit. It's the key to growth in the Christian life, to have that every day. And I just want to challenge you, starting June 1st, that's Saturday, to just spend 15 minutes a day reading the Bible. Here's what you do. Here's how you go about doing it. You find, this week you buy a study Bible. You either go online or you go to a Christian bookstore, and, here, and, and it can be any study Bible. doesn't have to be this, but I love the NIV study Bible. This thing, I, I just is beaten up. I just love it. It's just such a fabulous thing. And all it is is the Scripture and then notes on each of the, of the verses underneath. And I'm telling you, nine times out of ten, whenever you have a question on something, you pop down, and nine times out of ten, it'll answer the exact question that you had. I mean, when I was a pastor, 24 years old, fresh out of seminary, I would take this to a Bible study. And people would ask a question. I'd just go, oh, and I'd just let my eyes fall down to the study portion. And I'd say, well, I think, da-da-da. And they thought, 
Oh, seminary education is so awesome. That's amazing. No, I just had a study Bible. Let me let you in on a trade secret, okay? Just just get a study Bible of some type. Now, here's what you do if you don't already have a Bible. If you have a Bible reading program, ignore this. Just keep doing what you're doing. But if you don't, go to the resource center. As soon as we're done, pick up one of these New Testament guides with Psalms and Proverbs. And just start June 1st. Start, get your Bible this week. And then start on June 1st, and it's just great. It starts with the book of Ephesians. I can't think of a better book to start with. Then it goes Hebrews, James, and then it goes to the book of Matthew. How great would that be? And what you do is you just read a chapter a day and then look at the notes down at the bottom about that chapter and then pray, asking God to show you what he wants to show you from that part of his word. Just 15 minutes a day, five minutes to read that one chapter, five minutes to read the notes on the bottom about that chapter, five minutes to pray and say, God, show me what you'd like me uh, to know about this. And I'm telling you, it will change your life. And if you don't have that habit, it's the key to growth in the Christian life. And I urge you to start it this summer. Make it your summer, your summer uh, project. Okay, number five. He chose to not grow bitter. Um, you know, so many people, as we get older, uh, become bitter. And he made a decision not to keep track of the offenses, big or little, that people commit against us, but to forgive those and to move on and to not grow bitter as he grew older. And I tell you, uh, Jonathan Edwards is an example of that verse that you'll see there in 1 Peter 3, verse 9. Don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. His resolution number 15 resolved never to suffer the least motions of anger toward irrational beings. He was fired from his church when he was 46 years old. Now, can you imagine? I mean, this is like Billy Graham getting fired from his church. This is like unbelievable. Now, there were several factors that led to his firing. Uh, First of all, he tightened up the membership requirements for joining his church, and they were so stringent that he went four years without adding a single person into membership into the church. Then he heard that several young men in the church had gotten their hands on a midwife's manual that had lessons in female anatomy. The men were passing the book around and making crude jokes about female body parts. So Jonathan Edwards read their names from the pulpit the next Sunday. And he read the names of the people who had witnessed them doing this, never distinguishing between the two groups. Um, and, and, and he told me he wanted to meet with him that afternoon to talk about it at his house. There was also this huge disagreement about who communion was supposed to be served to. So the church voted 230 to 23 to fire Jonathan Edwards as their pastor. He preached his last message and he told the church that he would pray that God would bless them and he prayed for their prosperity. Now, just a little side note, and I want to be careful I'm not being naive here, and please forgive me if I am. But you know, as much as possible in your jobs, we, we should, as Christians should try to leave well. And I know I'm naive, and sometimes you've been hurt in a business situation or in a work situation, and, and I understand that. And maybe in some cases, it is just impossible. But as much as it lies within you, try to leave well. You only get so many chapters in your life. And you don't want to ruin one of those chapters where maybe it was good for a while, 
but then that company didn't need you in the next chapter, or maybe you had some good times there, but it just wasn't working to work to the next chapter. And I know sometimes it's impossible. I can be incredibly naive on this because I've only pastored two churches, and they were two, they've been two of the most wonderful group of people in all the world. And I used to, oh, I used to arrogantly say something really stupid. I used to say, there are no bad churches, there are only bad pastors. And my friend John Jackson said, Glenn, you're an idiot. There are churches that are nasty and, and devour pastors, and you can be the best pastor in the world, and there are some churches that will just devour you. So I stopped saying that when my best friend called me an idiot for, for saying that. Uh, but, but you know what? As much as it lies within us, leave well. And here he got fired by this church. He could have been bitter, but he prayed God's blessing on him. But here he is, after 21 years of being their pastor, he's unemployed. Uh, he used to say that this church is filled with wealthy people. And he had the largest salary of any country minister in New England. So he went from a big salary. This church took good care of him, and now he's unemployed. He's still got nine children left at home to support and no job. His youngest child was three months old, and he un- goes unemployed for five months. He's unemployed. Then number six, he served God wherever. Resolution number 62 Resolved never to do anything but duty, and then according to Ephesians 6, verses 6 through 8, to do it willingly and cheerfully as unto the Lord. You know, there are so many people uh, that will follow God as long as things are good and as long as, um, you know, things are comfortable. But as soon as God doesn't do what we want him to do or or as soon as life is not easy, our passion for God just evaporates. That was not true of Jonathan Edwards. He now becomes the pastor in Stockridge, Massachusetts. We got a picture there of this little tiny building that was kind of a mission to Native Americans on the frontier. It's in western Massachusetts, right where my sister and her husband and family live. They're right on the border of New York and western Massachusetts. And it was this tiny little mission outpost on the frontier to Native Americans. So here, the greatest minister of his time looked completely like a failure. He was in poverty. He got fired from his church. He's pastoring this tiny little church in the middle of nowhere. I mean, what a change. He goes from pastoring some of the wealthiest people in all of New England to this remote frontier church where the congregation would come to church smeared with bear grease to keep the insects away. And he preaches through an interpreter. Uh, the Native Americans had a name for him. John, uh, we put it up there. Okay, John there, I just made it up, you know. Any of you from Native American background, help me out before the next service. But Jonathan Edwards, he loved these people, and he served them with all of his heart, even though his family was living in virtual poverty. But this is where Jonathan Edwards did some of the greatest theological writings in all of, of church history. And he writes some I mean, I'm just so embarrassed. When I think of the beautiful office you guys have given me with that nice throne there behind the uh, thing. No, I'm just kidding. You know, but he he wrote it in this little seven foot by three and a half feet um, closet. And he writes some of the greatest theological works in all of American history from this dinky little tiny closet in this frontier mission outpost. Paper was expensive and he was he was broke. So he would take scraps of paper and sew them together in order to write. For example, he'd take the half page of a friend's letter underneath the signature that was blank, and, he, and he'd cut that away, and then he would stitch it to the side that was empty of a Boston newspaper. His children would make fans to sell in order to make money to support the family. 
um, he wrote extremely small because he was so broke and because the paper was so expensive. And he literally would write from end to end using every square spot in that paper. Now, after seven years of pastoring this church, Edwards gets asked to be the president of Princeton University. They said that when he got the news, he astonished everybody by bursting into tears. Now, we don't think it was because he didn't like the work he was doing, the ministry. But you see, Jonathan Edwards, he was an intellectual, one of the great intellectuals of all time in our country. And Princeton was a place where he could use his gifts and his job would match up with that. Um, And here, you know, this is a good example. Don't wait for perfect conditions to serve the Lord. Don't wait for perfect. You know, so many times we say, well, I'll serve God when I get older. Or I'll serve God when I make more money. Or I'll serve God when I get a better house. I'll serve God when I get more time. Don't wait for perfect circumstances in order to serve God. He just served him wherever. And then number seven, he died like he started in love with God. He's president of Princeton University at the age of uh, 54. In 1758, uh, he becomes the president, but he's vaccinated against smallpox. And, you know, the vaccinations give you a little bit of the disease. Well, it got out of control. He got extremely sick from the vaccination with smallpox. He's 54 years old. He gets all these postules in his throat where he couldn't talk, and he knew he was going to die. So his last words were in a note he wrote to his daughter saying, And as to my children... You are now like to be left fatherless, which I hope will be an inducement to all of you to seek a father who will never fail you. He was only president of Princeton for six weeks before he died. Here's a picture of his grave there that's at Princeton uh, University. There he is. Resolution number 17, resolved, that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. His life is summarized by 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. He had this passion for God from start to finish. And that's why I thought he'd be a great guy to finish with in our series, Being a Person of Purpose. Let's stand together for our closing benediction. The prayer room is open for prayer today, and so there'll be uh, prayer warriors, people that love to pray for people. In that room right there, the door will open as soon as we're done. And if you've got a physical need or an emotional need or financial need or a spiritual need, they would just love to pray uh, for you and with you. And I know that would be a great encouragement with you, according to James chapter 5, where it talks about prayer and anointing, particularly for physical needs, but for all needs as well. And then finally, I just want to finish um, with the theme verse that we've had throughout this series. We'll start a new series next Sunday. Ephesians 3, verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And all God's family said, amen. God bless you. Have a great day.